You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 1017 of the Locked on Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland, coming to you on a Thursday evening. And today's episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra. Only 95 calories, 2.6 carbs. Only worth it if you enjoy it. Stay tuned for the Ultra Moment segment coming up later in the episode. Today's podcast will focus on, uh, you know, the series, basically. Overall, the Hawks now lead 3-2 over Philadelphia after a monumental comeback win in Game 5, and for reference, we did a Game 5 recap podcast uh, solo last night. It was quite uh, quite long by my standards, but there was a lot to get into. I probably cut a lot from that, actually, but hopefully you enjoyed that. If not, uh, catch up on it. It's in the feed. Please subscribe to the podcast, all that fun stuff. But I'll be joined today by Joe Holbert, uh, a genuine NBA X's and O's aficionado. Joe knows a lot about basketball, uh, certainly observes the Hawks very closely, has been watching the series very closely, and we're going to have him on for a while. So that's coming up momentarily. Um, but first, some news catch up from the last few days here. We'll start with All-NBA, where the Hawks famously had no one reached the All-NBA team, which came up last night after Game 5 when, I, you know, Trey brought it up. A lot of people in the media brought it up. You know, the Hawks, no All-NBA players now lead uh, 3-2 in the series against a bunch of All-NBA players for the Sixers. But, um, you know, I was not terribly surprised that Trey didn't make All-NBA. I thought he should have been much more in the mix than he actually seemed to be with regard to the voting. And uh, I was, you know, again, not surprised, but he, he would have been higher for me, that's for sure. I, I said um, on this podcast when the voting was due – I probably would have had Trey sixth among guard, which, which would have been on, this, on, on the third team. He finished 11th. Actually, only got two third place votes, and one of them was Chris Kirshner, who who said that publicly from the Athletic. He said he was one of the two that voted for Trey third team. So only one person outside of Atlanta voted for Trey Young, and uh, that's a little bit surprising. That's definitely lower than I would have thought. I think again he should have been much higher in the voting, but uh, you know not a lot of respect, no All Star appearances, all that stuff. It is pre- pretty crazy to me that he was this low, but uh, alas. Um, Kind of crazily, also, not that this is not picking on Clint Capella, Clint Capella got more All-NBA votes than Trey Young did. And Capella was awesome this year. I've said that over and over and over again. Um, but he actually finished sixth, sorry, fifth among centers behind Jokic, Embiid, Rudy Gobert, and Bail Adebayo. He got six third-team votes, which was, uh, you know, obviously four more than Trey did. Still fell a lot short of the actual team, but that's the latest on those two things. Uh, before we get to the rest of the news segment... Today on the road to the finals, our NBA playoff coverage is brought to you by Michelob Ultra. It's only worth it if you enjoy it. 95 calories, 2 points carbs. We can all enjoy the games a little bit more this season. On the injury front, a couple of catch-up things from the last few days. The Hawks announced on Tuesday that DeAndre Hunter had surgery, which was scheduled. It happened in LA on Tuesday for the torn lateral meniscus that he had in his right knee. He's obviously out for the season, but as part of the release, the Hawks said that he is expected to make a full recovery in advance of training camp. So, that might not seem like it's too close from now, but the season's going to be starting on time this uh, for next year. So we're like less than four months away from training camp. So that's not that long of a time. So being full, fully recovered for that is obviously a good sign for Hunter. And we'll follow any other updates that happen in the coming days. Another injury update that happened came also on Tuesday from Travis Schlenk, who did his weekly radio inter- interview on Nights Around the Game, the flagship station of the Hawks here in Atlanta. And Cam Reddish, he said, has been cleared by the team's medical staff. Now, people got excited about that because the word, you know, clearing by the medical staff means that people thought he was going to play in Game 5. He was listed as out the entire way. And also, by the way, he's out for Game 6. That's already been announced by the Hawks. So, 
Uh, being cleared is not the same thing as being able to play in a game. Schlenk said they're trying to get him confidence in his recovery. And I'm going to quote now from Travis. The last thing we want to do is put somebody out there when they're not confident, end quote. He reemphasized that Reddish has been out for a long time, obviously. He actually said two and a half or three months, but it's actually been closer to four. His last game was February 21st. So as you're listening to this on either the 17th or the 18th, probably almost four months ago, last time that Cam Reddish played. Um, there's one more quote that I want to read you from Travis. And uh, I'm quoting it now, quote, to ask him to go out there in a game of this magnitude wouldn't be fair to him because he hasn't been able to get up that up and down run in, end quote. The Hawks have been pretty consistent with everyone, not just Cam. Actually, uh, Travis brought up DeAndre the first time about this, but they don't put guys on the floor until, they, until they're able and actually are able to play five on five in a live setting, which means like a full blown five on five run practice against real NBA competition. Um, that's sort of been their benchmark for a while. And right now, the Hawks aren't really, aren't really practicing much. Like today, for instance, on on Thursday, they just watched film. They didn't, they didn't actually practice. Obviously, these games are very grueling. They're not doing a whole lot of contact work on the off days. So I think, you know, the last thing Schlenk kept emphasizing again, um, sort of the the injury is now in the past for Cam. That's obviously a good sign. I'm going to quote one more time. We'll certainly take that. That's the way he said it, end quote. But sort of the, the, the tone is sort of upbeat here, we'll say, with Cam. But as I've been saying for quite some time, you can't expect him to really contribute this season. If it happens, it's gravy. I know I get asked all the time, and with good reason, about Cam and what he'll play and how much they get out of him. And I totally get that because the Hawks kind of are like a wing short, like a half wing short basically in the rotation right now. They don't seemingly want to play Solomon Hill or Tony Snell and they kind of have to. So I get that. But it's just been so long. He's so young. That they're going to be easy with him, quite obviously here. So anything you get would be a bonus. I'm not saying he could, that he couldn't return for the next series if they if the Hawks were to win this series, but for now, I just expect in my brain, I think you have to plan for Cam not to play, and then if he does, that's a nice little bonus for Atlanta moving forward. But the, the biggest thing that Travis kept saying is that he is now healthy with regard to being past the injury, which is obviously a positive thing. Um, as for Game Six, Game Six looms. Injury stuff is exactly the same for both teams. Trey is probable, and B is questionable. Everyone assumes they'll both play. Um, Hunter, Reddish still out. Philadelphia still without Danny Green, etc. Our friends at BetOnline.ag have the Hawks at plus three right now. So three-point underdogs at home in game six. That's a little bit um, more towards Philadelphia than I, than I would have thought. I thought it would be more of a coin flip, honestly. But regardless... Um, the Hawks are, uh, you know, gonna, you know, they're at home, and they've been really good at home for a long time. They're wearing their MLK jerseys. They're eleven and one in those, which people seem to always want to point out as well. So, a lot of good juju there. But we'll get into that more. Also on the series front, Bet Online actually has the Hawks favored at minus one fifty-five, and for the non-gamblers among us, that's implied odds for the Hawks to win the series of about sixty-one percent. That's a little bit low, I think. And that was kind of the general thought process that I heard from when the Hawks heads when I tweeted about this. It does seem a little bit low. I think people are still building in some confidence that in Philadelphia that I don't particularly have right now. But I get it on some level. You know, Philadelphia still seemed to be at least the projection of them in Vegas as as evidenced by the Game Six line and them being favored on the road. They're seen as the better team, but still, Hawks have only have to get one win. Philadelphia has to get two. So. Uh, an uphill battle for Philly. The Hawks, uh, quite obviously, their best chance to win the series comes on Friday at home, just by the nature of being at home. But they can still, they can go, obviously, they've proven they can go on the road and win in the series. So it's not like they, it's, it's over if they lose on Friday. So, um, you know, the Hawks are favored. They should be favored, in my view, having two chances to win one game. And uh, we'll obviously have much, much more coming on uh, game six and beyond. All right, before we get to Joe and the rest of the podcast, a segment brought to you by our friends at Michelob Ultra, and it's the Ultra Moment of the Week. There were lots of crazy moments from Game 5. 
quite obviously. We talked about a lot of them yesterday on the podcast with the Hawks coming back to take the series lead down 26 in the second half. As such, there were options aplenty for this this week's award on the most memorable moment, including big-time plays from Trey Young and Gallo and, uh, you know, all, Lou Williams especially. I'm going to go, though, with as a one moment. It's really hard to do this. John Collins and his block on Tobias Harris in the final minute. The Hawks finally took the lead after Trey Young makes three free throws, and Harris gets a nice pass from Embiid, looks to have a layup to give Philadelphia the lead, and Collins flies over from the, from the opposite side, blocks the shot, and uh, it was ruled to be off of Harris. The Hawks get possession, they come down, they score, and that was a huge swing and a reminder that John Collins is an underrated defender. He comes flying in again. That was a highlight-level block at a massive, massive time for the Hawks to preserve the lead and then obviously help in a big way towards getting the win. So that definitely qualifies for me as the Ultra Moment of the Week. And at 95 calories, 2.6 carbs, only worth it if you enjoy it. Go check out tons of other exciting Ultra Moments with the hashtag Ultra Moment. Joy creates success. Enjoyment is the end game. It's the whole game. Michelob Ultra Moment this week goes to John Collins in Game 5. I am joined now by a very, very smart NBA observer. Joel Holbert is here. How are you, sir? Really, really well, Brad. How about you? We're doing all right. Uh, it's Thursday as we record this. We're between Game 5 and Game 6, and obviously Game 5 is the headline, I would say, almost across the NBA today, which is not often what happens with the Hawks. Uh, you know this as uh, someone who's kept a close eye on the Hawks for a while. Uh, it is not, it's not usual for the Hawks to lead uh, NBA coverage, and obviously a lot of crazy stuff has happened around the NBA, so maybe they've been upstaged, but at least as of Wednesday night, it was a pretty wild comeback, and we'll talk about that now. I think we kind of have to start there, just because of uh, how that transpired. So, I'll open it up to you. What what stood out to you from the Hawks erasing a 26-point second-half deficit and uh, not taking control of the series? So, the first half, my issue with Atlanta's, it was kind of very, the word I used was robotic. It was very kind of much like Philly would throw a trap at one of the ball handlers, and they would almost whoever had the ball would kind of freeze and sort of predetermine what they were going to do. And that's where I think Lou Williams came into it because Lou Will was very decisive. He would attack the baseline a lot more. Basically, you know, I just felt in that first half, Atlanta weren't really getting Philly into rotation. It was too slow. I remember speaking to a coach a couple of years ago, an event I went to, and he kind of said, I'd rather my players made the wrong decision, but made it quickly. Hmm and sort of made a good decision but took ages to make it because you only get a finite amount of shot clock. So that was really what it was to me. I think defensively, I'm not... I think the sort of main thing was that Bogdanovich was on Tobias Harris quite a lot. That was really kind of the main adjustments. But I think the key to me from watching it was that in the second half, uh, the offense was a lot more quick, a lot more decisive, and... I've got some kind of X's and O's stuff that they sort of went into to push that forward. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it was obviously, you know, we can talk about, you know, Lou have obviously had a pretty big impact uh, when he came in, you know, late third, early fourth quarter. And I think he assisted and scored on like every point for six minutes, basically in that run. And uh, there's little things, uh, you know, pros and cons. And Trey was very, very good down the stretch. But what stood out to you offensively? Because I think, you know, a lot of people focused – I think justifiably so on some level on Philadelphia's offense and the way they sputtered. But with that said, I think people kind of overlooked how good the Hawks were offensively in the second half. So what did you see that sort of, aside from just making quicker decisions, what did you see from, uh, from them to that sort of open that up and allow them to score 40 points in the fourth quarter? 
I think the main thing I saw in the second half especially was that they would have more people involved in the pick and roll. So the first half was a lot of two-man game in the pick and roll. In fact, it was two-man games everywhere on the dribble handoffs as well. They started using more double drags in the second half. I remember one of the buckets at the end of the second quarter, for example. Solomon Hill ended up finishing an alley-oop off a double drag. They had another play where they tried to go out of Spain pick and roll. And Sixers were ready to defend it, which I think was actually kind of what the first half was. I think Philly defended a lot of the Hawks' core concepts really well. But out of that one I've just mentioned there in the second half, they flowed into something called Spain Leak, which is where basically the guard leaks to the perimeter. It was just a lot more fluid. But that was the main thing I noticed is that instead of just having one screener, they would either have a second screener. They would sometimes, to try and get Trey or Lou Will a bit more separation, they would have another guard pitch the ball to them. And it sounds simple, but if you bring an extra guy having to defend at the level of the screen, it can create space, it can create rotations. That was really the main thing I noticed. Yeah, it, it felt like, and I'm not quite on the level of someone like you or Glenn Willis or these people who, uh, you know, X's and O's uh, savants like you guys, but it felt to me that there was just a lot of space, and you mentioned the word space a second ago, but it felt like particularly Trey and Lou were getting um, into some space more comfortably. Uh, Trey was still fine in the first half, but after halftime, it felt like nobody could keep them in front of them. And I'm sure that's not just one-on-one. A lot of it probably was one-on-one, uh, which I guess I, you could weigh in on. But was it ju- was it sort of a combination of things as to why they were able to get so much penetration? Because once that happened, they were getting the, getting them in, in rotations, and a lot opens up there. But it felt it felt so much more uh, you know free and open in terms of just being able to get to their spots than what compared to the first half. And they, I still think in the first half, they would probably shot worse than you would expect them to shoot. But at the same time, you know, even visually, take the shots out of it, the offense just kind of moved a lot freely. Yeah, I think in the first half, something that Atlanta were trying to do was force the post up. And that's kind of, you know, when you've got size, yeah, that's something you do want to do as a tap mismatches. But it was, again, a word I used earlier was robotic. You can use the word slow, stagnant, stuck in the mud. I think it was very, when you're emphasizing that one-on-one play, it does become stagnant and something that, you know, in the second half, it's not just about the double drags, but I thought the screening was better. Something Lou Will did a lot as well. I kind of noticed that Philly were really getting into their pick and roll defense very quickly. So Lou Williams was rejecting the screen quite a lot. And I think that really threw Philadelphia off because Philadelphia were defending based on the way Atlanta played in the first half, which was slow, predictable. But when Lou Will started rejecting those screens, that's not what you wanted because your ball handler is on the side you think he's going, sorry, your big is on the side you think he's going to drive towards. And then as soon as he goes downhill on the other side, that's when you've got your rotations. And I just felt Lou Will, to be honest, changed the game. Trey was excellent too, but I think Lou Will getting penetration helped out Trey. Uh, because actually on one of the last plays of the game, I've got it in my notes here. Yeah, so it was the, it was a Trey Young layup. I believe it was a yeah, it was a floater from uh, five feet out. Oh yeah. Ben Simmons was top locking Lou Williams, which to me and basically Trey capitalized on that by just driving straight into the rim because there was going to be no help from the nail. That to me really summarized what the second half was about because they were top locking Lou Williams. That was how well he had played. He changed that game for me. Obviously, the defense was good as well. I don't know how many. I wouldn't necessarily say they made 
I didn't see anything glaring as a defensive adjustment. I just think Philly kind of Embiid stopped hitting ridiculous shots, and then from there we know we know how stagnant Philadelphia can get. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think I, I tried as much as I could to f- focus on Lou last night and how much of an impact he made. And it's kind of funny, you know, a lot of what he did is what he normally does. Like, if you watch Lou Williams, yeah. he's very comfortable rejecting screens. And there are a lot of those, like, mid-range fadeaways that he's that sort of his bread and butter shot. And I, I don't know if Philly just got discombobulated or what. But he, he was also hot. Obviously, you're not going to shoot as well as he did all the time, even on pretty good looks for him. But it did kind of feel like he was changing the game but at the same time maybe I'm crazy it felt like it was also just kind of what Lou normally does it just obviously more effective yeah it was weird the Philly did seem more thrown off by it than they should have because that's Lou's game Lou's game has always been tap the baseline um reject screens his game set up the mid-range shot you know he's got a counter for everything kind of that you can throw him and he takes those counters often but like I just felt with Herter and Bogdanovich in the first half, they were kind of playing sort of, again, a little bit more predictably. I don't know if we we see that out of Herter often. They've got different games. Herter's kind of a very smart player, whereas Lou Will was just getting to his spots. And I think that decisiveness was really what they needed. There were a few plays from Herter, especially where I felt he was really telegraphing the passes. He's had a great series, but in this particular game, that Lou Will's aggression just really changed it on offense. I, I totally agree. Um, I'm going to ask you about some other stuff uh, offensively, also defensively, lineups, etc. But first, a word from our sponsors on today's podcast. With the ever-increasing numbers of makes and models in the car or truck world, it's now impossible to stock all the parts that you need in a traditional chain storefront. Why would you endure often pointless questioning from someone at a storefront and have to wait while someone at the counter orders the parts on the computer only choosing the brand that the warehouse happens to carry. You have computers with access to rockauto.com right now, both at home and in your pocket. Rockauto.com is a family business, serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to rockauto.com to shop for all the audio and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. They have everything you need from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet. Whether it's for your classic car or your daily driver, get everything you need, just a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. The rockauto.com catalog is uniquely and remarkably easy to navigate. Quickly see all the parts available for your car and choose the brands, specs, and prices that you prefer. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or your truck. And from there, you went right locked on in their How Did You Hear About Us box to know that we sent you to them. Amazing selection, reliable low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, rockauto.com. But online is the easiest and the fastest way to bet on all of your sports action. Baseball season is definitely here and in full swing. You track all the action at betonline.ag. Plus, in addition to baseball, the NBA playoffs are here, as you're listening to all the time on this podcast. And uh, beyond that, all the latest news, odds, and info for all of your sporting needs. Of course, you have MLB, NBA, and you have NHL, UFC, MMA, golf, tennis, auto racing, horse racing, entertainment bets, all that you can think of. It's all there at betonline.ag. Before the next pitch or dribble, head on over to Bet Online on your laptop and mobile device. Check out all the great sporting news, sign-up bonuses, and contest information that you can find all in one place. Don't sit on the sidelines anymore. This is your chance to get into the game and get in on the action. Head to the website now or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit with BetOnline.ag. That's a 50% welcome bonus if you use the promo code Locked On. The promo code, one more time, is Locked On for a 50% welcome bonus with the site on your first deposit. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. All right, Joe, I wanted to ask you, on the topic of Herder, uh, it was crazy, not in the moment, because if you're watching it, it actually made some sense, but 
when you take, take a step back and realize that McDonavich didn't play in the entire fourth quarter and Herter was largely ineffective and, you know, was more of a spot guy. They were going with Trey and Lou and Gallo on the perimeter, which is just not what you expect. Um, but before we dive into some lineup stuff, you know, what do you take away from the Hawks being able to get that comeback done kind of with almost nothing from their two best wings as good as both guys have been at times the Herter the entire playoffs has really been awesome. Like Domich has been a little bit, little bit more cold, but I mean, it stood out to me that they were able to do all of that while basically not playing a wing for most of the fourth quarter. Yeah. They've got a lot of roster flexibility. Travis Slank's done a really good job of making sure they have, you know, they can run with the three guards. They can go with your, sort of stereotypical line, which is two guard two wings and a rim running big um they can stretch things out as well i think kind of the main the main thing for me that certainly when you mentioned gallinari and lou will they've targeted guys who can be isolation scorers obviously gallo's definitely got more to his game than that but like the threat of the pull-up jumper if you can get that going that changes everything you know, if you don't have guys who can attack off the dribble in the NBA at the top level, uh, you know, I've saw this with Dallas, the other team I cover, where basically Luca is the only guy who can beat people off the dribble. So when, but when you've got those multiple guys who can get to their spot, take the pull-up jumpers, it just opens things up naturally, and that's when you get the spot jumper. So I just think it's testament to the types of players they've targeted, which are players who can create their own shot, and I think they rely on them from there to just basically find the open man eventually. Yeah, I, uh, I could definitely see that. And I wanted to make sure before I forget to ask you this, what have you made of the of the sort of the jumbo lineup with Gallo at the three? Because the question with that lineup for me has always been, even dating back to the offseason when Gallo was signed and there was some speculation that he might play the three more, which really didn't happen all season long. But now that they've been doing that, it was really the defense that was the question because Gallo can't really move. But against Philly, that ha- they've been able to hold up on that end of the floor, and you have enough shooting because Gallagher's based the floor. It's obviously been working. Uh, a, is that sustainable for you? Like, do you like that group in this series? And also, I mean, just the fact that they've kind of needed it has been standing out to me because you know, with Hunter, sorry, with Hunter out, they almost kind of have to go to that. And I've even seen some people suggest that they should start it in Game Six. I, I probably, I don't think they're going to do that. But uh, the fact that that's even a discussion point is pretty crazy to me. I think, yeah, I mean. The thing that it's done is a lot of it has neutralized Tobias Harris now. It's not necessarily that Tobias Harris is end, always ending up on one of those three players, but Tobias Harris has always been – he is a mismatch attacker. That's what – remember the Doc Rivers eight – he took that Clippers team to the eighth seed, and a lot of what Tobias Harris did um, in parts of that season, Gallinari as well, they were attacking mismatches. Well, this size kind of takes away that, but Philly are a big team. I, I, don't, I wouldn't try it against Brooklyn uh, – or Milwaukee, you know, whoever wins that series, if Atlanta get through, I wouldn't try against them. But for this series, it works. And I've got kind of one of my biggest concerns for Philly is that basically Matisse Tybal, he's a good player, but they're when they run in with Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, basically of all the three man lineups that the Sixers have played in this series, that is literally the only one in the top 20 that's got a negative net rating. I think if they continue to play those lineups, you can definitely get away with Gallo a lot more. Adjustment the Rivers for me should make is go with more three guard lineups because then then you can attack Gallo out in space. But then I guess he would argue that Gallo's size would kill whoever, whichever guard you wanted. But I'd rather take my chance with that 
than just basically do what they're doing at the moment, which is having stretches where the offense is very stagnant. Yeah, you're kind of picking your poison there. And I, I, to your point, like you know, you can't really win when Philly has a lot of one-way players, uh, and that's yeah. not what you. That's not ideal. Obviously, they have some small guards offensively. They have some defense first, or maybe even defense only guys at times. And uh, Gallo is someone that the Hawks are, as we saw down the stretch, even. Uh, he hit one of the biggest shots of the night with that fadeaway late in the, in the last minute. They're comfortable posting him up against a smaller guy and just kind of going with that. And he's good enough to make that work. Um, I was gonna, I was going to flip this around and ask you, sort of, you know, as as an observer of the league and what's going on in this series, um, what have you made of Philly's like offensive stagnation? Obviously, two games in a row now. It's been both ends of the floor at some time, but the attention has really been paid to their offense and the whole Simmons conundrum is obviously out there and the hack of Simmons. I mean, what have your observations been when the Hawks are playing defense and more, almost moreover, like Philadelphia's offense and uh, how controversially bad it's been? Yeah, I mean, Simmons down the stretch literally just stands in the dunker spot. <laughs> they don't use him as a screener. He doesn't handle the ball. Uh, it's been tough to watch and what, what I like that McMillan has done is he puts Collins on him because Collins is very good as a weak side helper. But the, honestly, the main disappointment for me has been Tobias Harris, certainly in the last game. Just like he's there as a mismatch guy. He's got Bogdanovich on him, but he doesn't seem to be being assertive enough. But I just think a lot of that is the spacing because, you know, Embiid, you want him on the block. I've From the tape I've watched, I think the Sixers are better with they're disrupting the Hawks more the closer Embiid is to the paint. When you start using the elbow, I think the Hawks look more comfortable there. But they just, they're not getting anything from Simmons in these minutes. And it is difficult because ultimately you want Embiid on the block. You want him certainly on pistol action, stuff like that, getting to the baseline. But if you've just got Simmons standing in the dunker spot, the other three guys need to be positioned perfectly. And it's it's really, really difficult. But I think the main thing... Philly have got to do. I would definitely not play Matisse Tybal with those two in the next games. I don't care how good the defense is. For me, when you've got Simmons and Embiid, your defense is going to be pretty good. No matter who the other three are, Tybal to me is just overkill. A bit more balance and they'll have they'll have less problems. But their stretch offense to me, it's been startling how uninvolved Simmons is. Yeah, it is uh you know, not that it's a new problem, but I agree. It's it's been even more glaring and I made this point last night too, but I think Harris is the guy. If you circled uh, a play, not even, I mean, I guess, you know, Simmons got a lot more, got a lot more attention because it's been a long-term issue with him and, and his half court offense and all that. But I agree with you on Harris. I, th- I thought Harris was their biggest problem in terms of their main guys, because you, you expected him and they, they need him to do more offensively. And he was just basically a zero in game five. And that really kind of killed them. Um, what do you think of, there's been sort of a popular notion that even I've talked about it a little bit too, about maybe staggering a little bit more, having Simmons play almost back up five minutes with how shaky Dwight's been at times. Obviously, they'd be a little bit small if they did that. But I would also, in particular, I've pointed out because it would get them away from the hacking. Because if you're playing Simmons early in quarters, it's a lot harder to do the hack of Simmons. Um, and I thought, with obviously, their lineup, their bench lineup with, with Dwight in Game 5 was just so, so bad that it hemorrhaged. And that's a little bit probably cherry-picking. But I do think that... There's something to that, to where you maybe if you're Doc, you got to know now they're gonna foul Ben if they can if they can do it, and maybe you want to get him on the floor in spots where he can't be fouled. I would agree with that. I mean, Dwight, it's he's missed quite a few dunks 
which to me with the and they've been really good looks as well and something if you speak to six as fans regularly like i do they've moaned all year about the all bench lineups they're just really bad yep so i, I think simmons at the five as well that's something different you can throw at atlanta because you could with the right personnel you could switch quite a lot of things there i think that that's something that could just throw something different at atlanta rather than just throwing traps at them all the time i think trey is now starting to learn how to deal with them a lot more um that that i've never really actually looked at it like if you play them at the start of the quarter they can't hack him yeah that's a really good way of looking at it as well and i also think that with the tempo that team could play at they could draw a lot of fouls with simmons at the five that's definitely something they should go towards and again that also might help matisse thibault because if you're playing thibault and simmons together that's fine if Embiid's not there because the other three guys can be more sort of perimeter-centric guys, that might help with that because you do want to get a guy as good as Tybal is defensively on the court. Yeah, no, and I think it's more of a one-off in this series with regards to playing him early in quarters because McMillan now has finally, in my opinion, he probably waited too long to do it, um, but finally sort of put on put it on the table like look we're gonna foul this guy and everybody knows it and Simmons has been so bad at the free throw line that it's the right decision I mean no one no one likes watching that but that's in the rules and if Simmons is out there in the bonus and the Hawks particularly if the Hawks are losing they should be fouling and they did that the math tells you that's that's the right that's the right move so if you're Philadelphia I was gonna ask you this too do you just take Simmons off the floor? Like that's a, that's a obviously a discussion point. But with um, as bad as he shoot at the line, is it worth it to just take him off the court for Philly, even though they're not super deep? Um, if they were deeper, it would be an easier decision. You feel like, but if this happens again in Game Six and you're docked, do you t- just take Simmons out? Yeah, I do because you're just throwing possessions away. You know, it's and again the defense with Embiid, it's going to be. It's going to be pretty good with Embiid there. And, the, you know, they've still got, they could put Thibel in the game as well. That's definitely, like, to me, It I, I'd understand keeping him in more if when if when you are running a set, he's really involved as, like, a screener, a ball handler. Yep. But he's, but he's not involved. You know, example, I'm not saying, like, if it was a kind of Draymond Green thing, where Draymond, yeah, he's not a scorer, but you, he runs the offense, you run a lot of it through him at the high post, and he hits the cutters, and off all the screens they do, you can understand keeping him on the court. But if Simmons is just standing at the dunker spot, you can put you could put Dwight Howard on the court to stand at the dunker spot. You're not <laughs> using him. Uh, yeah, he, he's got to bench him at this point down the stretch. Even without the hacks, I'm not sure what he brings down the stretch because if the Hawks are going really small, and, they, and most teams now anyway, even if you say, I'll put Simmons on Trey, Teams now use all these 21-guard pistol actions to get the switches they want anyway, so it becomes a little bit less relevant to say, oh, I'm going to lock him up 1v1. It, you know, it doesn't work like that all the time anymore because teams run so many guard screens to get the matchup they want. So they definitely need to look at Benjamin Simmons because they're just not getting any usage out of him at the end, and it's just wasted possessions. Yeah, and to your point there, I think the Hawks – whether they would admit this or not, I think they would much rather have Trey be defended by Tybal than Simmons because Tybal will make mistakes. We saw one, um, he's just jumpy, and this obviously he's a great playmaker defensively, but um, we saw the one late where the Hawks took the lead in the final you know minute and a half where he get, he, he just he leaves his feet, Trey gets, Trey gets three, three, three shot foul, makes all three, and they would rather have Tybal guarding Trey than, than Simmons. Um, if they can, if they can do it, but to your point, like it's you, you can get a switch um, relatively easily. You would imagine if you scheme it up correctly, and 
I don't know. I was going to um, open it up to you before we get out of here. Is there anything that's like standing out to you as you watch this Hawks team that McMillan should be trying that he hasn't done yet? Obviously, they've won the last two games, so it's a little bit hard to you know go too crazy on changing stuff. But also, they've had some really slow starts. So is there a button or two that you think that, that should be pressed if you're the Hawks or something to keep an eye on for game six? I'll be honest, even though the Hawks won the game, uh, Seth Curry cooked them off screens. They were basically, Philly's plan on offense was put Trey through a lot of screens and kind of flow into the rest of the action from there. So that's something that obviously it creates buckets for the rest of the team as well. But I don't know how you fix that because who who do you put Trey on if not Seth Curry? But that was really, I know, I know he's not going to shoot as well as he did from three every game. But I'd be interested to see if he changes matchup. If he puts Trey on someone else, maybe if they start Corkmaz again, he'll put him on Corkmaz. I don't know. That's something I would definitely look at, even though they even though they won the game because Seth was just killing them off screens. They were getting nowhere near him. And then when when Atlanta did tr- start to blitz the three, that's when you get into rotation. And with the athleticism they've got, you don't want to be giving these guys open opportunities for cutters. Yeah, I mean, obviously the stat is uh, almost overboard, but with Curry and Embiid being the only two that had field goals after halftime, that still just blows my mind that that happened in Game 5, but it did. Um, I don't know. It's Is there anything that's like you think is like going to decide game six. If I, if I, if I made you choose something, uh, obviously there's always, there's let me more than one thing clearly, but is there one thing that you would pinpoint as like the pivot point for game six? Because you know, the Hawks are coming home. They may not be favored in, in the betting market, but it'll be close. Um, and obviously they're favored in the series now, but is there something that um, stands out to you above the rest as like, this is going to decide game six or the series? Yeah, Tobias Harris's performance. I think he's got to be aggressive. He's got to be decisive. But Doc has to put the right spacing around him because if you've got Tybal, Simmons and Embiid with him, it doesn't necessarily matter that Bogdanovich is on him because you can help off multiple of those guys. And that's when it becomes difficult. But even then, there were some possessions where Tobias had single coverage against Bogdanovich and, he, and Solomon Hill, I think, on a couple of occasions. And he was settling for mid-range fadeaways so that for me is what decides the game Harris is over important on this Philly team because of the way the roster is constructed for me if he plays well Philly wins but I think McMillan has made really good adjustments Bogdanovich and Dot Rivers said this himself earlier has done a really good job on him whether he's actually on him or whether he's the first man away he's done an excellent job disrupting him just as he did with Julius Randle in the first round yeah, I've always kind of thought Bogdanovich was underrated defensively, and a big a big part of it is that he's not huge, but he's really strong. Like he's not a great athlete, like laterally or you know a great leaper or whatever, but he's a stout guy. I think people don't really realize about about him, and that allows him to play up a little bit. If you have to, you know, Harris is obviously a lot bigger than he is, but he has done a good job. Um, I think Harris should still be better than he's been in the series. I think you've probably pretty much said that as well. But I, I would agree, like, that's high on the list for me too because I have a hard time seeing how, you know, knock on wood, um, I, don't, I have a hard time seeing Philadelphia winning the series without Harris being good in probably both these games. Because now, now, obviously, you know, goes without saying, the Hawks only have to win once and Philly has to win twice, including one in Atlanta. And, they, you know, you, even if you're Philadelphia and you can expect Embiid to be good probably if he's healthy – 
you can't rely on Curry being that crazy good um, as he was in Game 5. And Harris is, you know, their guy offensively to create offense. And that's kind of a scary proposition, but it really is true. Absolutely. And again, it helps that Nate has that size lineup he can throw to even further disrupt Harris. But Harris, I, I still think Harris should be getting the better of Gallinari if he ends up on him. But I know Collins has been on him a lot. And I think actually on the whole, he's done a good job. But this to me, like, I, I like Tobias Harris and I have done since he was on the Bucks and Magic back in the day. But the way this roster is constructed, if you're a conference finals team wants to get to the finals, can you say, well, my second most important player offensively is Tobias Harris? I don't think you can. I don't think that's enough to push you over the edge. And that's obviously not helped as well by the fact that Simmons literally, when it when it comes <laughs> down to it, he doesn't, they don't involve him on the offense. Yeah, it really is a, a wild thing to, you know, Simmons has been an all-star and you, you just don't see guys that have, you know, again, made all-star teams and been recognized like this in, in the modern game who become as much of a non-factor as he does. And this is not a Sixers podcast, but I, I've read a lot today. I'm sure you have as well. I listen to a lot. And, um, you know, I think he's getting um, he's getting pretty beat up, but it's hard to say that he shouldn't be. I, I think it's it just kind of stands out to me and. Uh, how and to bring things full circle just how I'm, I'm, I'm not even sure how to even say it like how useless almost he's been offensively like it's it's kind of yeah. scary to see that for a guy number one overall pick all that stuff and he just they, they just kind of don't use him at all and advantage hawks i mean the hawks love that i mean please if you're the hawks you you, you would love ben simmons to be on the court just bury the ducker spot standing around him as, as a free target to foul but if you're philly like that's just kind of untenable and it's also as well, like, it's the fact Collins can just help off of him. And that's where, yep. you know, again, I said Draymond Greed earlier, they're different players, but, like, the Warriors in their peak, they kept Draymond involved as a screener, as a handoff guy. But I just think, obviously, if you're trying to set up Embiid on the block, the reality is Simmons needs to be spacing the floor in some way. It's it's just a really difficult pairing to make work down the stretch offensively. And if other if the other team is hitting shots like Atlanta was down the stretch, you've got more half-court possessions, and that's really when their issues show up. Because that's ultimately what it comes down to, the NBA. It's about your half-court possessions. That's what wins you championships. And Philly just don't have enough there for me. But the Hawks said earlier they've got a lot of guys who can get to their shot in the half-court, and that's... That's why there's been different guys who've won them different games in these playoffs. They've got a lot of variety on the roster. Yeah, I mean, obviously Trey is the headliner and the best player and the best creator. But if you go, you know, line by line on these rosters and just talk about offensive creation, the Hawks just have more guys that you trust to get their own offense or you know even get get offense within within the within the structure than Philadelphia does. You know, for Philly, it's essentially yeah. it's Embiid, it's Harris and Curry, and you know, occasionally you'll, you'll get a Corkmaz or a Milton game. But that's not, you know, a, a terribly deep uh, bench of creators. Uh, whereas the Hawks have five, six, seven guys that can get their, they can get their own shot. It's it's really showing up in the series, especially in both these comebacks back to back. Now the Hawks have just been able to kind of get their own offense at least consistently enough. Whereas Philly bogs down, and when when things get tight, you have to be able to score. Absolutely, and again, I just think I think as we've said, like that's what's going to decide. That's what's going to decide this game, and it would not surprise me if he benched Simmons. 
Agreed. Uh, well, Joe, thank you for taking the time, man. I appreciate you doing this. Uh, I want you to plug uh, your, your your Twitter, anything anything that you have uh, written. I will promote you myself right now and saying uh, I learn a lot from the stuff that you uh, post and write, and you've written for feature groups in the past, and you are a very, very keen observer of the NBA, so I will say that just to promote you as well. But please uh, tell people where they, where they can find all of your work. Yeah, so my Twitter at is at Joe Holbert NBA. Uh, the main th- the main team I cover is the Dallas Mavericks. So I'm now covering them for Mavs Money. The, and Hawks fans love the Mavs, as you know, Joe. So that's going to be an awkward one in it. But I I do do general NBA stuff, and obviously I did used to write for Peachtree. But one of my closest friends, Alan Cole, he's a big Atlanta sports fan, so I've always had a soft spot for them, and I watch. I would say. Atlanta in the UK we have an East Coast and a West Coast team. Atlanta are my East Coast team. If I'm ever free and they're on, I always watch them. So I've watched all their games. I'm really happy to see this team doing what they're doing. Yeah, no, it's it's been fun, and uh, I, I know uh, people probably people probably guessed that you were not from Atlanta by your voice during the podcast, <laughs> but now now you've revealed that you are across the pond. But uh, no, sincerely, thank you for joining me on, on the pod. Again, I recommend everybody follow Joe, check out his work, and uh, you'll learn as I have. Uh, as for everybody else, please subscribe to the podcast, and we'll see everybody after Game 6.